Before we kick things off, I'd like to acknowledge that Race Matters is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This land was stolen. It is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Race Matters. 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 listening to Race Matters. My name is Tanya Ali. I'm the executive producer of the show. And today we're going to hear a chat that Darren Lasagas had with Korean-American author Alexander Chi. Last year, Alexander Chi's nonfiction release, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, was named a Best Book of 2018 by Time magazine. It's a beautiful collection of essays exploring the ways art intersects life. He's also released an award-winning coming-of-age novel, Edinburgh. Darren and Alex talk about those works, the way we understand intergenerational language, Spider-Man fan fiction, and first times in drag. Let's have a listen to their chat. I want to read an excerpt from your essay, uh, Girl. It is such a beautiful moment of uh, crystallisation for someone living as uh, queer and biracial. uh, And it's Halloween and you're in drag for the first time and you're looking at your made-up face in the mirror and you're with your boyfriend. And it reads like this. In this moment, the confusion of my whole life has receded. No one will ask me if I'm white or Asian. No one will ask me if I'm a man or a woman. No one will ask why I love why I love men. For a moment, I want Fred to stay a man all night. There is nothing brave in this. Any man and woman can walk together in love and unharassed in this country, in this world. Did that sense of clarity of yourself uh, stay with you after you took up took off the makeup? <laughs> I would say it deepened, right? Mm. Like I realized that I needed to have that uncomplicated relationship with myself. And not mediated through the the thing that makeup can provide. I think can provide anyone, even the people who quote unquote are supposed to use it. You know, um, I I remember uh, being fat like fascinated growing up by this cousin of ours, my cousin Tina, who was a very pretty, still is a very pretty blonde white woman, and. She lived with us for, I guess, about a year, year and a half while she was going to school n- nearby. And she had this routine for her makeup that began at 5 a.m. Wow. For her makeup and hair. She would get up, and it was hours. And I w- it was like she was getting ready to, <laughs> to go on TV. <laughs> but she was just going to classes. And I, w- I was... I was... You know, of course, what you want to use the bathroom, so you're sort of like when is this going to be done? And the answer like hours later is not really like a great answer (laughs) at that time of the morning. Um, But that was one of those times when I realized once I took it all in years later, realized the, the, just the, the gap between what uh, is allowed for a man and what is allowed for a woman, quote unquote. Um, You talk about how the clarity deepened. How do you, 
maintain it? You know, how do you maintain that clarity of yourself, especially after you, you just mentioned that uh, it was years later that you realized what that moment really meant to you? Do you seek out those moments or do you kind of wait for them to come and try and keep your eye out for those moments of clarity? Mm, I wonder. I mean, I remember uh, doing a web feature, like, I guess sometime in 2000 and 2001, 2002, the early life of the internet, and presenting all these photos of me from, like, up until then as a part of it, and the per- the web producer was like, all these pictures are of you. <laughs> 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 and they, you know, included, like, different, like, in one of them I had blue hair, in one of them I was in drag. Uh, I had like a, I used to have a kind of a James Dean hairstyle kind of thing, like on the cover of the book. Um, although it, that hair is laying down, uh, it's actually my hair was almost never like that back then. Um, and then I had the sort of buzz, the buzz cut that I have now, which I actually got because I was so tired of thinking of my hair. I just did that. I used to have really <laughs> long hair, and uh, two weeks ago I thought I'm just going to chop it off. I'm tired of it. <laughs> well, it, you have so much hair. Still. Uh, yeah. But um uh but yeah, it was, you know, I think at the time I was really obsessed with my hair and I think the hair was a really a way of thinking about other things, you know, like being aware of how how what I looked like and even what race people might think I was would change when I uh would change my hair or change my facial hair. You know, I remember in, when I lived in San Francisco, if I grew a goatee, suddenly everyone would speak to me in Spanish on the street, which uh, <laughs> was funny. Yeah. Um, like uncanny for me. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it always is interesting. I think the the clarity comes eventually when you when you realize how much of it is about other people and that you can't control that and so trying to trying to have a kind of reliable uh identity for them is something that isn't important it's the reliable identity you have to have with yourself i want to talk about this idea of decolonizing language and thought um fee in uh, edinburgh his korean grandfather in um there's a description of him in his return to korea and i'll read it out He learned the language of the people who took his sisters and destroyed them. All his thoughts came to him in Japanese first. His dreams in Japanese also. Every single thing he says in Korean comes across a pause where the Japanese is stilled and the Korean brought forward. Each part of speech a rescue. For diaspora, for first-generation immigrants, I feel like like myself being one of them, uh, we're torn in that language is both connect and disconnect. Um, We have the key access words, but we don't have the meaningful understanding behind the entirety of the language. How has writing changed your relationship uh, between language and culture? I mean, I think it is always changing it. And I think that's part of what's fascinating to me about being a writer right now and being a writer in general. I think it's maybe even why I was interested in being a writer when I was younger and interested in reading and stories. The The grandfather character in that is, is modeled after my own grandfather who did 
tell me that that was his experience. And I had a very interesting epilogue to that happen where after my grandmother's death, he wrote a, a kind of biographical sketch of her that he published, and we had it translated into English so that we could read it. Um, because <laughs> interestingly, my own father did not want us to learn Korean uh, because, as he put it, if you can understand your grandfather, you'll obey him. <laughs> and he had seen his own siblings' lives destroyed by things that my grandfather had insisted that they do. So it was this very strange moment to read him describing the courtship that he had with my grandmother and how she had asked about him because of the way he would stand up to the Japanese and the sort of patriotic, uh, the, the way he was still patriotically Korean. And the context for that also didn't mean as much to me until recently when I read Young Hill Kang's uh, novel, East Goes West, which is the first Korean-American novel uh, where it describes, I should say, a Korean-American experience in America from a Korean-American writer. It was published in the early 30s and is coming out again this spring in a Penguin Classics edition. Um, and it was... It was that sense of my grandfather was revised again by reading about how for Young Hill Kang, he left Korea then in the early part of the 20th century because in his mind, his country had been destroyed. There was no Korea and never would be again. So it was, it was this, it, it's a, I guess what I'm trying to say is in terms of your, your question about language and how does it change, like uh, everything that I'm, learning, it seems, at some point, ends up revising my sense of what that experience would have been like for my grandfather and, uh, and what, what that even means, you know. And even for myself, like, I have decided to learn Korean this year at the age of 52. <laughs> um, and, and it feels intense because I'm I feel like I'm going against my father's uh, wishes in this way. My grandfather is dead. There's no reason to not, you know, to still live inside of this bubble that he erected for me. <laughs>
also explore your relationship with language in your first essay of how to write an autobiographical novel, uh, The Curse, where you're on exchange in Mexico and uh, learning Spanish, and you refer to mestizo as a Spanish, a Mexican concept, uh, someone of mixed race. How did that inform your identity as biracial uh, in America by comparison to Mexico? It was an intense experience, as I say in the essay. It was this sense of belonging to something that I had never been able to find before. And even though I knew that it wasn't exactly my word, I wasn't Mexican, um, but they had this easy way of understanding me through that word that was uncomplicated. And up until then, my life in America had seemed so complicated, especially in Maine, where... You know, the people there did not seem even to know what Korea was a lot of the time. They didn't know how to pronounce the word Guam, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is where I'd spent part of my childhood. They, you know, they seemed frustratingly uh, unable to process me, you know, as a person. And so to go to a country where everyone was like, oh, hey, you're, yeah, you're Macisso. It just was intense to have that complication drop away. I don't know if this is like a reflection of, again, being immig- uh, an immigrant in white settler countries, but uh, I'm Filipino and we have the term mestizo in the Philippines as well. Um, and I was brought up to believe, uh, however subtly that my parents enforced it in me, that it was like a dirty word, but like I really couldn't figure it out uh, why it was dirty because I was wondering whether it was the brown uh, presenting Filipinos who didn't want to be called white or the white presenting Filipinos who didn't want to be called brown. Was there anything like that when you were growing up in America? I had no sense of that. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, sometimes people would say to me things like, oh, you, uh, you know, your brother and sister look more Asian than you, mm. you know, mm. which was always uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but my brother used my... Uh, like I let him use my driver's license to get into bars for a while. 
uh, when he was 18 and I was 21. And it worked? It, it worked until yeah. until he ran into a bouncer who actually knew me. Yeah. <laughs> In your essay, uh, The Queerant, uh, I really identified with your story uh, as a school kid. Um, utterly convinced that... Uh, that he was different in a way, uh, not imbued in your race or uh, sexuality. Um, for those who haven't yet read it, a doctor comes to your school, uh, tests students for psychic ability, <laughs> and um, you are convinced that you'll be selected uh, for further testing of your latent psychic powers. Um, I somewhat identified uh, with that <laughs> because uh, I didn't think I was psychic, but growing up as a confused uh, Asian kid in a pretty much all white school. I felt like I wanted to imbue my difference with a sense of power. And I was obsessed with Spider-Man uh, at the mm. time. And I wrote these stories where um, he would be at my school. He'd be like hiding in a room after being in some fight with the Green Goblin or something and hiding from him. And then I would walk into the room and he would grab me, um, keep me quiet and keep me safe. And there would be a cut on his hand and the blood from his cut would like touch my lip and then that's how I would be transferred to his power. <laughs> and then I would become like the spider boy sidekick. Do you think? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you would get like that uh the the danger sense that he has. Yeah. Or something like yeah, or something more than that. Well yeah, yeah, something like that. Um and then we would just fight crime together or whatever. That's a great story. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> That's the first time I've told someone in a few, a good many years. Um, it would you, make for an interesting spinoff. I mean, you must have been thrilled then by the the Spider-Man adaptation, right? There, there's, a, there's a lot of them. Oh, with the but one so with the, the multiple universes? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, when um, Miles Morales came out, I was like, oh, wow, that's me in a different universe. Yeah, I think... Thinking about the uncanny in relationship to ourselves ends up becoming a pretty natural mode because it feels uncanny. It feels like it shouldn't be happening. You know, it's sort of it's related to what I would say often when th when talking about Jean Reese novels. I would say her novels are always about a woman who expects to be treated as a human and is instead treated as a woman. You know, and I think the it's analogous to to our experiences, where our humanity for some reason isn't available and then it becomes problematic to insist on it. And so then you think, well, why why hold on to that? <laughs> why not become extra human? Um, and, uh, or at least I did, and I guess you did too. And it, it's part of why I think, you know, my first two novels are uncanny. They They're not, strictly speaking, entirely realist fiction and uh, the third one the eventual third one I think probably won't be either and I think it's because for me I think it's because the uncanny is the is the best way I can think of to describe how I parse the real as it were. Alex has a hugely successful Korean American author what are some lessons you're teaching your students who identify as students of color that you wish you could have taught yourself earlier? Well, I think I usually start with the way in which they write stories so often where the characters are white or no one has any ethnicity. <laughs> and um, 
I remember having this very, it was like maybe the most diverse class I'd ever had, a handful of white students, and all of the students of color were all writing stories where either no one had any ethnicity at all or the characters were white. Why do you think they were doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, you know, I think, uh, and, and they would be very, they were very politically motivated students and politically sophisticated students in conversation. And, uh, and I noticed that they were very willing to take on certain issues in, uh, the stories from the white students that needed to be addressed. But then I, I thought, well, now we have to have the uncomfortable conversation about what exactly they think they're doing. (laughs) And I remember because I did it, you know, it's something that you, uh, it's something that you go through where, you know, it's that same, it's that same thing that I was talking about where I was so relieved when things became simple because the the, the quote unquote, the complexity, the way in which people seemed always to need some kind of exhaustive explanation of why I existed, you know, was, uh, was something I just got tired of bringing up, you know, uh, or even experiencing the, the question of like, what are you, you know, um, or as I, as I came to learn, like not everyone of my friends growing up got the question, how did your parents meet? <laughs> Which was the very polite way of asking that question. Mm. Um, and it's still, when you think about it, you know, I would always answer because I knew the story and I thought, you know, it's a good story. I'll tell you the story. But then years later I thought, oh, there's a little bit of menace in that. Yeah. Like, how did you, how did you happen? How did we get you? What went wrong is, is somewhere possible down the road in asking that. You've been listening to Race Matters. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've just heard our chat with Korean-American author Alexander Chi. This episode was hosted by Darren Lasagas and produced by Darren Lasagas and me, Tanya Ali. You can listen in to Race Matters anywhere you listen to your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, or at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. If you do like the show, we'd love it if you could take the time to write a little review on iTunes or just sling us a rating. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, you can head to our Facebook page, Race Matters on FBI Radio, and shoot us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next time. Race Matters. 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 Race Matters.